0: You are listening to the Curiosity Podcast, a podcast aimed at equipping future changemakers with the skills that they need to thrive. We discuss business frameworks, exponential technologies, mental health, and living the life that you want to lead. We release an episode every second Thursday and can be found at curiositypodcast.ca. Hello and welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we are joined by Leonard Boussou, who is an incoming professor at the University of Washington in the Information Systems and Operations Management Department with an adjunct position in the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering. He was a PhD candidate in operations research at MIT using data-driven methods to replicate in computers our human capacity to understand and utilize data. Leonard has developed and deployed machine learning and deep learning models to address high-stake challenges, including healthcare operations, pollution management, hurricane forecasting, and ecosystem preservation. In the past, he interned at Google X, the Moonshot Factory, Mila, and Berkeley. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are really excited to talk with you. Um, Is there anything that you wanted to add to that introduction before we jump into our conversation today?
1: I want to add that you are wonderful, and thanks a lot. I've been, I have been—I met you when you were at Google X, and I was very blown away by everything you were able to do. And I'm so excited that we have a chance to connect today. So to everyone listening, you have amazing hosts. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much for saying that. And again, thank you for being on this podcast. I'm super excited to have you on, to have a great conversation. When I was researching you, I was like blown away by everything you've achieved, so really excited and when you like look at your achievements now it can be kind of crazy to think about like how you even get there like you've done this amazing research at like world renowned institutions but what were your first steps what were you like in high school when you were just beginning your career and just thinking about what you want to do with your life
1: so in fact for me i would say things started as a kid when i was in the countryside in the south of france it's a very modest environment where we have simple lives people are simply happy happy and joyful and they don't necessarily think about career abroad or people don't know they're not aware and however i was exposed to the feeling of being passionate and the feeling of getting to know everything that's around you so i was extremely curious and as a kid at six i was already knowing all the birds i was able to name 800 birds and i got passionate also about orchids butterflies dragonflies and i spent my whole childhood in nature trying to learn more about all those living things and i developed a respect for nature and a lot of admiration of every problem nature was able to solve so it gave me a taste for engineering and problem solving and also the feeling that we should be humble by nature and by our situation so i come from a modest environment and i wanted to to do a lot of things in my life. I wanted to to help others, I wanted to sort of escape this normality. And I read a lot of literature also that brought me a lot of new concepts. And by being curious, hardworking, this brought me more and more the desire to, to work outside of the country, learn more, for instance, in the United States. And for this, I was learning everything through books because nobody around me would know anything. So books were really a way for me to escape my situation and know how the world was 100 years ago, how other people seeing it. So I worked hard. That was the main thing for me. And also a lot of kindness, gentleness to everyone around. And not only trying to succeed myself, but help the others around. And I would say that this was very important to me. And it also put me up because by helping others also, many others helped me and it's a a collective achievement from my family from my friends from all the people that shaped my life and i i went through working hard trying to get to know the different ways of uh, the educational system in france and after a lot of work a lot of perseverance and trust and optimism this brought me up so i would really say also that enthusiasm positive energy are key components that made me able to to go beyond. Because I always felt this is possible, there is no limit to what I can do. It's all about being helpful of others, being able to receive help from others, which is also not obvious, and always wanting to help making the world a better place. This whole positive mindset always brings me joy every single day and makes me the desire to do even more and constantly learn new things. So it started with curiosity, It went with hard work, positive energy, helping others, the feeling of community, the feeling of being helped, the gratitude. And all of this brought me with a constant flow of energy that pushed me up. So I would say that this is how I was shaped and this is how it brought me with this capacity that I constantly have with me to go beyond.
0: That is so great to hear and to hear about your positive mentality. Um, and a lot of our listeners are either in high school or in university, some in high school thinking about what they want to study in university. And I was wondering how you decided what to study in university and, and how you made that decision.
1: So there is something very specific about me, is that I'm passionate about everything. I'm really extremely curious about chemistry, phys- uh, quantum physics, artificial intelligence, computer science, maths. So I really liked everything and I had no clue what I can do if I like everything. So I decided to take a safe path in my case, which is I'm going to learn maths because there was the saying that if you know maths, you can do everything you want later. So I would say that this is kind of true, but I would not say that you should do maths if you don't really know what to do. It's just for me, a way to buy time. So I did very intensive uh, computational and mathematical studies And indeed, it brought me the capacity to solve whatever I wanted later on. The French education is very centered around developing the theoretical component. And later at the very end of your studies, you will be able to solve problems through projects, collaborate with companies. Sometimes in the US, it's a bit the contrary. Immediately you tackle projects and you learn by doing. I really respect that. And I think the complementarity of my French education of tackling very theoretical things brought me a superpower whenever I arrived in the US to solve everything. So to tell all those high school students who don't really know what to do, I would say, follow your passions, because this is what will be your engine. If you wake up in the morning and you know you will be doing something you like, you will accomplish it. So don't follow a path that is not yours. Don't try to follow something that other people said you should do. Try to follow your dreams, things that get you enthusiastic at any moment of time, things that Will, will trigger sparkles in your eyes. And if you do that, you will find like, your happiness. And you have to know that our world is constantly moving much more maybe than before. So you can always reshape your path. You can change. And more and more, we are becoming towards a, a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary education where you don't have to focus on only one thing. And for me, that's the case. I already, always wanted to learn many different things. And still today, I do research in so many different topics because I love so many different topics. So I would say follow your passions, follow your dreams, and your heart will tell you this is something you really want to do or this is something that someone else would like you to do. So it's a fine balance between knowing your dreams, satisfying over pressures and constraints, but being aware of all those pressures or of these things you try to satisfy will help you find in the right way, I would say.
2: That makes a lot of sense. So it's kind of setting goals for what you want to achieve and then also like how you would want to achieve and like would you enjoy the process of achieving those goals through certain like mediums so i'm really curious after university after your undergraduate program how did you decide what the next step in your career was going to be because sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming especially right after undergraduate programs you feel like the next decision will kind of tie you down almost in a direction so that you feel that and how did you decide where to go
1: next so as a kid, I was reading a lot of science reviews where it's uh, they try to explain difficult content for kids. And in particular, many inventions were made in the US about astronomy, about the cool engineering things. And very often, I could see the word MIT. I do not know what MIT was exactly, but it looked like a cool place. So I started thinking, I want to go to this place. I don't really know what it is. It looks like something far away, but something where cool things happen. So I started building up this mental, believe that i want to go there so once i finished my first undergrad in france we have two uh, undergrads if you do a specific track the first one is two years of super intense maths physics computer science extremely intense it's the equivalent of four years of undergrad at uh, for instance, at mit in four years you learn in maths as much as i learn in two years so it's super intense but you just learn you don't practice you don't do uh, projects it's just about learning very hard stuff so i felt the desire of i want to do more than just learning. I want to apply and solve real-world problems. So that was the next thing that drove me. I want to use every single knowledge knowledge I learned into solving problems I cared about. So this is how I started to shape the rest of my undergrads and uh, the, the desire to do graduate studies, which was I want to solve problems I care about. In particular, I cared a lot about ecosystem conservation. So I tried to use everything I had learned in computer science, software engineering AI to build my own app. I built an app to identify insects. So you take a picture of an insect. It identifies it using AI. And then it maps it. And it's crowdsourced data that can be available to museums. And I built everything from scratch, the algorithm, collected the data, developed the partnership, learned how to code in JavaScript and uh, Android Studio to develop the app. And the app, was, in the end, was downloaded by 50,000 people. So it got a lot of success. I learned many things. And this one project, this is what brought me to AI, brought me to this desire of doing more and more of those ideas because I could see that I could make things happen because I learned the knowledge I needed. And I feel very rewarded because I have something to show, something I'm proud of. And this brought me the desire of becoming even more of an engineer and keep doing research to learn more things. So this is this single project that was really a trigger for me that, okay, I want to do this. And this is even something I wrote in my statement of purpose to be admitted into the U.S. universities and people really liked it. So all the admissions committee, they appreciated this fact that I I decided of an endeavor and I made it happen. So they really respect the fact that you have a dream, you have a component you really care about and you are going to make it happen. And you have many problems along the way to solve. And this is what really brings you into the real world. And I think I learned a lot from this. And I decided, okay, I want to go more into the world of research and engineering.
0: That was really cool to hear about how you started with that one project and then from there kind of just kept building um, and you didn't even necessarily know that you wanted to start down that route until you like did a hands-on kind of project. Uh, And now you've built and deployed multiple machine learning and deep learning models. Uh, And you mentioned uh, the model you built to do with ecosystems and insects, but you've also mentioned other models that you built to do with you know industries like healthcare, so it's a large range. And I was wondering what your general framework is for choosing a focal point, um, or just identifying an important problem to build upon. If it's going to be even like a few month project, how do you decide if this is something that that's worth your your time
1: investment? Yeah, so I indeed time is very precious. So the you can use time for different things. Maybe you only care about learning the technique. In that case, if the project is not that useful for the real world, that may be okay for you because you learn the technique and can reuse later. Another focus could be, I want to learn a technique and make sure that what I will do with this technique will end up useful for someone. So I like taking this approach because not only you learn something, but also it will impact someone somewhere. And I really feel even more rewarded by that. So how to find those projects? In fact, we are surrounded by problems. Like if you go in the streets, you're surrounded by, for instance, transportation that is not on time. By the, you go to the grocery shop, it's too expensive, or you don't find the product you want, or you want to use Uber or Lyft, but it's not there, or you don't have the money. You see poverty in the streets. You you hear in the news about climate change, about wildfire smoke coming to your city. You hear about problems constantly, all the time. What I can tell you is that any one of you can decide of choosing one of those problems and and do something to contribute a solution to it. Any problem, even though you don't know much, you can do something if you have the desire, the energy, and the passion. Because we have so many ways to learn right now. You can learn through Google. You can learn through typing. You can learn from connecting with people online. and You can call, email, or call, write to people. Maybe they will be able to help you. You can talk with ChatGPT. You have so many ways to learn today. So I would say that a good focal point is you choose a problem that maybe impacts your life or impacts someone and it does something to your heart, to your guts. And you say, okay, that's something I want to do. And I bet every one of you, you have some of those. Maybe you come from a modest environment and you made it or you haven't made it yet. And you want to help others make it through. And you are very aware of those problems. And there is there are so many ways to help. Some of them will be about policies. Sometimes it will be about using data, building solutions. You have many different ways. So I would say, first, try to find the pain point that you you face or someone faces somewhere and you care about it. And then start investigating what solutions you could build. For instance, type on Google how people would solve this. Try to connect with people who are working on that, for instance, NGOs, governance, policies. And then you can try to Get in touch with people who have technical knowledge to help you solve it. Sometimes it's AI, engineering. Sometimes it can be finding the right policy. Sometimes it's about going in the street and asking people. There are so many ways to so explore how you feel like, what brings you energy, and use your curiosity. There are so many ways to approach all of this. So, again, I would say use your passion, your desire, your observation, your curiosity to find out issues that you see around you and that you read about to find something that will attract your attention. And then your energy will bring you towards people who also want to solve the same thing. And you will be able to find the resources one way or another.
2: What you're saying is very empowering, I think for a lot of people, because there are so many problems all around us, like you said. And when you believe, instead of just like being able to identify them and then maybe being upset by them, when you truly believe you can do something to solve it and change it for the better, I find that like incredibly empowering. Uh, like one of the reasons, like I work in tech, I love tech because it's all about like you can define a problem and then just solve it pretty quickly. Same with all other industries like hardware, you know, like biology, all of them. Like they're just different domains of solving problems, but the problems are almost infinite. So it's just like find a problem and then like a domain that you like and then you know try solving the problem. And at your new job, you're going to be focusing again on solving problems and these problems are in sectors such as healthcare, agriculture, and climate, some of the biggest domains in the world today. So can you tell us more about the research you'll be doing at your new job at EUW?
1: Absolutely. So first, you mentioned the word healthcare. I've always felt that healthcare is a cool thing, but it's not at all my, my focus. I know maths, I know physics, I know computer science, but I haven't followed the route of becoming a medical doctor. So when I had the opportunity as a PhD student to help medical doctors by building analytical solutions to help them, I felt an immense feeling of impact, belonging, and it was extremely rewarding to me. So what we did is we helped medical doctors building algorithms to help them making best better decisions. For instance, during the COVID pandemic, we built the models that predicted all the, num- the number of COVID cases in the whole world including in the United States, and our model was one of the best and very often even the best. So the the CDC was using our model that we developed from scratch. We also developed algorithms to reallocate ventilators from different states to other states because there, were, there was a shortage in ventilators. And it was fantastic for me to do such thing because I learned a lot about optimization. And here, I could use pure maps to actually help people and maybe saving lives. So those are two examples where I felt I could Save lives, so you really feel, uh, wow! Everything I learned is actually coming to fruition, to life, and you feel extremely happy. You work extremely hard because you feel, wow! I can save lives, and I want my time to help the other people to to feel better. So I decide now to keep on this path of healthcare as one of my research directions. And what I do is using my specialty, which is mul- uh, combining multiple data sources. So if you go in a hospital, the doctors, they will ask you, for instance, your blood pressure. They will measure different things, your age, your weight, et cetera. So they acquire some data about you. Maybe they will will request an MRI picture, a radio picture. So they want an image to make a better decision sometimes. Maybe you have something broken. They may also take an electrocardiogram. They will measure uh, the different pulses. So these are called time series. It's something that evolves across time. They may also write notes about you. So every time you see a doctor, if you see the same one, they will write a few notes about you, and then they can read the notes from previous visits. So those are texts. And so doctors, nurses, they use all those data sources to make decisions. For instance, do you need this, uh, this drug or another one? Do you need to stay at the hospital for the night, or can you go home? We have many data sources available, and my specialty to merge them. And this is quite complicated because they're all different. And then I build algorithms that can leverage all of them and help doctors. One of the things I will do in the future, helping doctors better decide if this person can leave the hospital, if this person is in the risk of dying in the next 48 hours, if this person should receive this drug or this one, if you should prescribe this treatment. Those are difficult decisions and imply difficult data sources. So this is the direction I'm going for healthcare and how do i do this i partner with healthcare uh, institutions i don't do this out of the blue with random data i want to use real data solve real problems so the best way is to partner with people facing the problems everyday so it's something i discovered from my research is for high impact partner with people actually facing the problem because otherwise you may assume too many things but that in fact are not real problems or you overlook something that is in fact super important and you did not figure out it was important. So people with the field knowledge can really figure this out for you. And although they don't know about AI or optimization, they can give you the right knowledge you need in order to be able to help them. So I like this multidisciplinary approach and I encourage anyone listening that foster that. Try to not only collaborate with people who who know the same thing as you, but collaborate with people who don't know what you know, but know other things, like this, you can really merge everything together and have much more impactful projects.
0: It's very interesting to hear about all these projects that you've worked on. And again, just the wide range is so impressive. And kind of just to follow up on, on what you just said, you know, many of the models that you worked on during your PhD are already in production. They're saving lives, money, and improving sustainability um and you touched on this a little bit but i was wondering how you get your models from research to production um and did you have to learn business skills such as pitching ideas and creating contracts for using the models in the industry i know you mentioned like making sure to talk to people who are in the space and just building those connections is really important uh but i was wondering if there is there were other aspects that came into play when trying to bring those models into production
1: absolutely so When you join a university, hopefully, they already have networks. So this is helping. When I arrived, for instance, I was not the one choosing which project I would do exactly. I would say, I like this. And then we would find, with my advisor, some mutual interest. MIT, obviously, attracts a lot of uh, companies, a lot of institutions. So it's easy to figure this out that, okay, those are real data with real people. So they come to the university with problems and data. So of course, it's easier in that case because they know they have a problem, and they know MIT students or any other university students could solve it. So that's one approach. People already come at you with their data and their problem. They don't necessarily know exactly what's the problem. They know there is something you could do better, and they trust you to figure it out. So I've seen this many times. For instance, I have a project in mind about air pollution in Morocco. They have a factory producing very important chemicals for agriculture. Those are fertilizers. Problem is, whenever you produce that, you pollute a lot. So they had data about their pollution, data about the weather, and they told me, can you help us designing algorithms to better pollute? So we know we can't avoid polluting, but at least we can decide when we pollute to avoid pollution that will be harmful to people. So they came with data and the problem. That's one scenario. Another scenario is you think there is a problem somewhere. So you will be the one contacting an institution and telling them, hey, I have those skills. I'm very passionate about it. Would you have some data? Are you actually facing this problem? Let's talk together. And I have a few examples that I've done with this principle. I'll give you two. One is about, again, ecosystem conservation, this insect project I mentioned previously. I had the idea that we need more data about where the insects are located to understand better if they're disappearing or not. So I contacted directly myself, museums. And I told them, hey, I know you're not doing anything with AI. It was early back in 2017, so AI was not as spread out. I told them, I know about AI. Would you have some data to give me? And I will build algorithms that may be helpful for you to crowdsource more data. And they told me, of course, we're super enthusiastic about it. That's super cool. Here is our data. That's one. And another recent project I've made and started is about forestry. So I'm now supervising a student who is very enthusiastic about understanding more about forests and how we can have better urban forests. Because it's very important to feel uh, more closer to nature and also forests decrease pollution, they bring happiness, and they bring biodiversity in urban environments. So he told me, I want to do something like that. And I had no specific data problem to solve. So I directly reached out to the US Forest Service. I directly said, hey, I'm an incoming professor. I have a student. We are super enthusiastic about it. Would you be available to meet? And he said, yeah, sure. We met. We learned about the different problems they're facing. And then we had a follow-up meeting. They are now in uh, the process of giving us access to data. And then like this, we just create our own problem by reaching out to people. So I would say that constantly around you, you have people with problems and data and maybe you can find ways to reach out to them. Or if you don't know such people that you look around, you okay. ask friends, and then in the end, the network effect will make that you will be able to be in touch with people facing the problem. Because those people facing the problem, wish should solve. So if you have the energy to solve it, hopefully you will find someone who will give you some time, data and advice and guidance.
2: I love how you mentioned like both problem and data set, because oftentimes I think the issue is that there is no data available, and it's really hard to solve the problem without it. And so what I find really interesting, and it kind of opened my mind, you mentioned that like institutions come to MIT and other, I guess, universities with problems and with data. But what do you think stops these institutions from just like open sourcing a list of problems with their data sets? Is it like a legal issue where there needs to be an NDA signed?
1: Uh, Those are actually absolutely good points. Sometimes it's legal issues, for instance, healthcare, typically, they won't put their data publicly available because you have so many legal issues. So you will need lawyers in the healthcare side and the university side. So in many projects I'm involved in, MIT lawyers talk with the healthcare lawyers. That's one aspect that sometimes you don't have the data. Sometimes you do have data available. For instance, there is an immense publicly available data set about healthcare, it's called MIMIC. This data set is publicly available has so many data sources, and many people can use it. And it comes from an actual hospital, so Beth Israel Hospital. So that's an example where everyone can get started with healthcare, play a bit, and then develop some skills. And then they could even reach out to different hospitals around through their network or directly. And then they could try to find NDAs and et cetera. So those are uh, two good points. There exist many platforms with publicly available data. For instance, there is Kaggle which is the platform that hosts data science challenges and even some prize money, you have so many data sets available there. You have Google data sets, which is the Google, just for data sets, as the name says. And over there, you can find so many data sets publicly available. You also have the United Nations that developed a platform where you can find all the 17 goals, for instance, reducing poverty, hunger, fairness, climate change, uh, better energy, and they give data available for every one of those sources. So I even, I, mean, I taught a course at MIT last semester, which was analytics for a better world. So we take undergraduate students and we teach them all the different tools around optimization, machine learning, and AI. And the whole course is centered about how can you use those techniques to solve real world challenges around the sustainable goals defined by the United Nations. And the, all the students provide develop incredible projects. And they all used publicly available data. And they all developed some hands-on approach. And we helped them also getting access afterwards to real institutions that are would like this thing right now. And this is how it works. Like Sometimes it's not exactly the data that will be used by someone else, but you develop your intuition, your understanding, your tools, and then you can be in touch and tell, hey, I did this with this data. I could help you do it with your real data here and let me help you. So this is a, another way to circumvent the fact that sometimes it's not publicly available.
0: That makes sense. And and kind of on that note, I was wondering what advice you have for students either in high school or university who wanna learn about deep learning and ML skill sets. Uh, I know you're mentioning projects that students were doing in that course that you were teaching. Are there any introductory projects you may have worked on that you think beginners can develop to kind of just understand the basics of code and, and modeling is I know sometimes machine learning can seem very vast. You don't really know where to start. Um, and so for people who may not know where to start, would you say the best way to to kind of get going is to work on like a hands-on building project?
1: So I would say, yes, I totally agree with this. I also like the fact that when you have a course, some being a professor is is a, is a job. And the reason why it's a job is that there is some skill into defining and designing a course, a curriculum that will give a good outcome to the students. So that's my job, becoming a professor, is how can I design a curriculum that will engage the students and teach them in a very well curated way, how they can go as fast as possible to impact. So I'm currently designing a publicly available course around AI and machine learning. We expect to release it this upcoming spring. So it will take still a few months. But I'm also involved in two efforts about teaching how to use ChatGPT to actually figure all of this yourself on your own. So I recently gave a TEDx uh, in Boston about how you can solve the United Nations goals in five minutes. Of course, never possible in five minutes, but the idea is ChatGPT can guide you through all the steps. If you want some help brainstorming, ChatGPT can help you brainstorm. If you want some help learning about Python, and develop this, you can be helped by ChatGPT. If you want some help about developing your own website to showcase your skills, ChatGPT can help you doing that. So more and more, the barrier is going to go down in terms of technical skills you will need and will rather become about your energy, knowing what's possible to do, becoming, being able to collaborate in teams. So it's about enthusiasm and energy again. And I would say that if you really want, you'll be able to Google what you need. Will be able to talk to different people that will give you the one piece of advice you need right now. So I would say, indeed, if you don't know exactly what resource to find, choosing a project that you really care about will give you this energy, this path that will guide you and will push you forward. And then you will figure out a way because you're all very smart and you, whoever is listening, you can make it happen. And this is about you wanting your passion. And uh, even if you don't have access to Uh, prestigious universities, prestigious institutions, if you have limited resources, it doesn't matter. What matters the most is your energy. Of course, some people, it's always easier than others, but your energy will bring you up. So follow your path and uh, ask around, surround yourself with positive friends who also want to do things. Try to work in teams and um, you will find a way through, connect with people who are solving the problems you care about. They will give you the one piece of advice you need at that time. There are so many resources publicly available right now. Uh, There are a lot of courses uh, publicly available as well, like uh, MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, that I I know because I've I've taken those online courses. You can follow those publicly available courses about machine learning. ChatGPT is such a nice way really to learn right now, I would say, because you can interact. It's like a a personal tutor. So I would say you have, it's all about the energy and having something that motivates you every day. If it's not random learning, if it's something that triggers you more desire, I would say that will give you the energy to, to decide what you need to learn to go next. And I I, of course, great. whenever it becomes available, I will re- share the resources about this this course that we are putting up together. That is very well designed for learning all of this.
2: Congrats on developing the course. And it's really refreshing to hear such optimism about like the future technology as well. Cause I think a lot of people are stuck by fear so they're like oh like is my job gonna be gone like they just think about the downsides but like i love how you're saying like you just have this energy there's problems all around you these are resources that you can use to solve these problems and you can solve these problems so there's no need to like be kind of silented by fear and be like you know motionless kind of thing like you can solve these problems and you have the tools to do so so i think that's really beautiful uh, and I was looking into your research and something that came up a lot was multimodality. And can you describe what this means and why it's so important to make the most out of your data sources?
1: Absolutely. So traditionally, people uh, in the past uh, years, they would use only one data source to make decisions. For instance, if I'm a doctor, I will try to prescribe a treatment uh, by taking a radio picture. And algorithms were unable to process one. While humans, they will try to have what is called a holistic point of view, meaning that they will try to have a point of view of everything of the patient. Previously, what happened, the drugs you're taking right now, the different measures I've taken from you, the different notes I've read about you. So multimodality is about how can I help algorithms to use all of those data sources together. And in fact, so many problems around us are like this. If you decide what to order uh, for your meal, this is in, in fact a multimodal decision you're making. You're thinking about taste, you're thinking about health, you're thinking about if you have time or not time, you're thinking about, for instance, maybe if it's a sustainable meal, if it comes from far away, if you are vegetarian or not. So you are thinking about many different things. So this is multimodality, the fact of taking into account many different aspects, and some of them are based on a specific source, for instance, the smell the taste, the vision, the touch. So those are modalities. And it's difficult to have algorithms being able to do the same. If you want to deal with agriculture, for instance, you want to decide how much water, how much fertilizer, how many seeds, if you should put some special chemical treatments to fight pests. All of those are different decisions. And how to predict and help agricultures and farmers to do this. Maybe you need satellite imagery to know the weather. Maybe you you need some specific samples of data taken across years in this specific field, what was the yield. Maybe you need to know future climates or predictions of the, the future. So you need many different data sources to be able to recommend things. So that's the principle of multimodality. How can I leverage all those different aspects together into a unified framework? And that's a difficult thing, but we have techniques to do it.
0: Um, and what is the hardest part to develop and fine tune in your multimodality modality framework? Um, would you say it's like gathering data, extracting information with AI or the actual machine learning model?
1: Typically, it's actually what you mentioned first, meaning gathering the data. Very often, real-world data is always messy. You have missing values. You never get the real data you wish you had. It's always like that, always. Meaning that that will take, it's a huge time thing, being able to have the right uh, engineering pipeline such that your data is easily accessible. Very often, data is very heavy too. If you deal with satellite imagery, for instance, which I deal a lot for agriculture, hurricane forecasting, forestry, ecosystem conservation, all of this deals with satellite imagery. And the problem is, it's very big. You have its um, images taken across different time steps. You have not only, for instance, just an image, but you also have the topography, meaning altitude levels, you have the temperature, you have the precipitation, you have so many features and they're all geographical. This is super heavy in terms of data. And you can't download just everything and just say, okay, I'm going to use this area. You need the right pipeline to do all of that. So this is an engineering challenge that is very time consuming to develop in general. And um, the algorithmic part, part is OK. It's not easy, and there are many challenges. But uh, typically, people find it fun. So you have fun building different algorithms, trying this block or this block, trying this architecture. And more and more, we have amazing models, AI models that can leverage difficult and complex data sources. For instance, the Transformers architecture is super famous these days. So I would and finally, fine tuning, evaluating is always a challenge, but really, Preparing the data, having it in a nice format is a big challenge. And I would say the number one. It takes about 80% of the time, people think. So it's, uh, it's huge.
2: Wow, that's very interesting to hear because at least in the news, uh, oftentimes that's not what's conveyed or at least like the hype usually goes to the models themselves rather than just like the engineering pipelines. So very interesting insight. And we're reaching the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for being on this episode. But before we go, could we get three action items for you from the listeners?
1: Absolutely. So, number one, I would say be enthusiastic, optimistic every day. Look at the world towards a positive outlook. Don't look at what's negative and try to see how, instead of looking at, oh, it's so bad, how you can make it better. So, I would say passion and energy is something that will always bring you up. It's normal to have moments that are difficult, it's always to be. It, it's not always easy but try to have an overall positive outlook so i would say number one number two i would say that surround yourself with people who are also positive and don't be alone be part of different teams and try to build a group of people who want to change the world with you who want to do to go beyond with you because you won't do it alone you will do it with friends it can be mentors it can be professors it can be Partners, but surround yourself with other people. And third, I would say, help each other. Be curious. Be solidarity. Be have gratitude for everything you receive. Cultivate this mindset of being humble and wanting to not only have a good life for you, but a good life for the people surrounding you. And it will also, it's the karma law, it will go back to you. If people around you are happy, it will also make you happy. So overall, I would say those three things. First, develop your passion and enthusiasm. Surround yourself with people and teams. And finally, be helpful to each other, solidarity. Be part of a village culture where you will try to learn more about the people around you, what they want, what are their dreams, how can you help them. And they will also want to help you. This is what happened with me. I've been helped by so many people, and I'm trying also to help in return so many people every day. And it cultivates really a village mindset where everyone knows each other, everyone is contributing to greater happiness. So I would say those three points.
2: Thank you so much for these like very positive and beautiful action items and takeaways. And thanks again for being on this episode with us today.
1: Thanks so much. Really, uh, very exciting discussion, questions, and to everyone listening, thank you also for being there. I really trust in you, even if I don't know you. I know you will do great things. Smile, be happy, see the world to, to its best outlook, and I'm really confident that we can make the world a better place all together. Although it looks challenging, I'm very confident that we can make it happen.